everyone, and welcome to the 20th episode of Roots to STEM, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the paths they've taken to get where they are today and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Steph Cady, a biology grad student at Stanford. I feel like I've started a bunch of these episodes by saying that it's a special episode, but I guess since each one is unique, they are each special to me in in different ways. Um, But anyways, this is another special episode for me because I'm talking to one of my professors from undergrad, Gonzalo Girobet. Gonzalo is a professor of organismic and evolutionary biology at Harvard University, as well as both the curator of invertebrates and the director of the Museum of Comparative Zoology. I first met Gonzalo when I basically begged him to let me take his invertebrate biology class when I was a sophomore because the class sounded really cool and very crucially because it had an amazing field trip to go snorkeling in the Boca del Toro archipelago in Panama for spring break, which like, yes, please. I've always loved going to the field to see weird and cool animals, which is a sentiment that Gonzalo and I share, although his travels are on a whole other level. He's been to every continent in the world to collect specimens for his research to study some often overlooked and underappreciated groups of invertebrates, including velvet worms, if you've ever heard of those. If you haven't, you should look them up. It was super great to catch up with Gonzalo and hear about what the museum portion of his job entails, which, spoiler alert, being a museum curator in a natural history museum is not at all what I thought it was. But anyways, I hope you enjoy hearing about invertebrates, museums, and lots and lots more in this interview with Gonzalo. All right, great. So the first question is, can you just introduce yourself, um, who you are, where you're from, and a little bit about the research that you do? Yes. Hi, um, my name is Gonzalo Jernibet, and I'm a faculty member at Harvard University. I'm currently the director of the Museum of Comparative Zoology. I'm originally from Spain. I grew up uh, south of Barcelona, where I did my undergrad and my graduate school. And then I came to the U.S. to do a postdoc first at the American Museum of Natural History. And then I moved to Harvard as a faculty member in 2000. And my research um, is uh, on invertebrates. Uh, so I work on all sorts of invertebrates. You know, a lot of my work focuses on arachnids, but also on marine mollusks and I'm interested in studying their evolution, their biogeography, how they interact with the environment. So all sorts of things related to invertebrates. So you just mentioned it sort of briefly. Can you walk us through your story of how you started out as a kid in Spain and then how you got to where you are now? Yeah. Um, You know, one of the the earliest memories that I have when when I was growing up, and I'm talking about really being very little, is that the things that I always wanted to do was like basically go out and, and just collect snails or butterflies. But I'm talking about like three, four years old. That's not you know, very common <laughs> at that age. Um, and, you know, the, the gift that I always wanted the most was like a little butterfly net. And I would just spend time outside looking for all kinds of animals. And I always knew it from, from a very little kid. I was really fascinated by small animals and vertebrates and insects and arachnids. And, and then growing up uh, by the beach, I, I really you know, started um, with shells very early. So I had my shell collection since I was I don't know, five, six years old. And I spent all my um, young days, you know, collecting shells at the beach and then collecting all sorts of any animal related things that I will find anywhere, right? My, my room was always 
filled with you know skeletons and shells and dead animals and live animals um, so all sorts of things so from very early i always wanted to study biology that was my passion since i was a kid and and always was very driven to then go and study biology and then i went to undergrad at the university of barcelona uh you know university in europe is a bit different but at least in spain is a bit different from here um, you already choose your topic from when you enter in university, right? So I did five years of biology. Basically, it's not a liberal arts college. It was all biology topics for five years. Um, so, you know, maybe I missed on other areas of knowledge, but uh, we did study a lot of biology. <laughs> so, and then, you know, from the very beginning also, I, I looked for a lab to work um, while I was an undergrad. So I did a uh, quite a lot of research on, on sea urchins or marine biology type of work. Um, and then I really wanted to work on evolution systematics uh, for my PhD. So I found uh, one of the, the first labs that worked on DNA phylogenies. At the time, very few zoologists did any work with DNA. Mm -hmm. And I, I really, you know, it was an emerging field. There were some important papers that came out, just as proof of concept that you could do phylogenies with DNA. Right now, everyone does phylogenies only with DNA and, and they question morphology. But at the time, all the phylogenies were based on morphology and only a few people started doing DNA-based phylogenies. And I really wanted to incorporate that uh, for my PhD. So that's that's what I did with my PhD, working on, on molecular phylogenetics of arthropods. And, and then from then on, I continue with my career, which is based heavily on, on DNA sequencing, but also we've continued doing morphological work on many different groups of animals. Mm -hmm. So your postdoc that you did was at the American Museum of Natural History, yeah? Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what a postdoc at a museum is like? Because I think yeah. many people that listen to this are, you know, in the stage of grad school, before grad school, postdocs. And so I think hearing about what that is like would be interesting. Also, because I don't really know, like I'm more mm -hmm. familiar with a postdoc at a university as opposed to at a museum. Yeah. So I think that is a great question, actually, because um, also at the time, there were not a lot of uh, possibilities to do research in, in museums in Europe, right? I mean, there were some of the big museums where they had that. Uh, but clearly, the, the American Museum of Natural History was one of the leading uh, institutions on phylogenetic research. Um, actually, during my PhD, I spent three months at the American Museum uh, doing uh, some sort of like short-term research visit and, and you know I fell in love with the facilities they had a very large molecular lab and they were building a supercomputer for analyzing phylogenetic data mm. so in that sense most American museums and, and now many museums around the world they are uh, research institutes if you want right they have the public phase of the museum which is what people you know normal people interact with the exhibits and the programs that they have but behind the scenes is all the research, right? And they have their curators who take care of their collections, the research collections, uh, specimens, and there is a lot of research going on in, in all the American museums. Uh, some of them also now, including the American Museum, now have their own PhD program. So they also award PhDs um, in, in biodiversity-related sciences. Um, at the time, they didn't have a PhD program, but they did have a lot of grad students from different universities. Mostly they had people from Cornell, from Yale, and then from the local universities in, in New York City. So it was a very vibrant environment with lots of grad students and postdocs doing research. Um, so in, in that sense, it's very similar to a university, except that teaching was not a component uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so then from there, you went to Harvard. And, and from there, I, you know, I had been in the U.S. for about two years. And, I, you know, that's the time that I came for, for, for postdoc. My original idea was then to return to Spain and try to, to get a faculty position there. But I was really enjoying doing my research here with all the resources that I had available to, to you know, for my research, which I had never had before. Mm-hmm. And um, so I decided to, to stay a little bit longer. Um, my, my PI at the time, I call it Warwiller. Wheeler. Uh, he got a big NASA grant to do phylogenetic work. And, you know, I knew that he had uh, the big grant. So, and, and I think he was pretty happy with me. Um, so I went to talk to him and say, hey, you know, now that you get this grant, is it possible to stay a bit longer? My fellowship was ending. So I asked him if I could stay on the grant. And, and he said, sure, you know, I'll be very happy. But you have to apply for this job. And he gave me, you know, a job ad, um, which is the the position that was opening as curator of invertebrates at the Museum of Comparative Zoology and a professorship at Harvard, right? So I said, sure, you know, I'll apply for it. Uh, if that's the condition to get a postdoc, I'll, I'll send my application, right? And um, and here I am. Wow. <laughs> that makes it sound very casual. I mean, I'm sure there was I a lot. I, I have to say I wasn't planning, uh, but... I was prepared for it, right? I mean, I had been working very hard and I had a very competitive CV, you know, quite early in my career stage, you know, and also I was one of the the first people applying molecular phylogenetics at large scale in many different groups of animals. And and that's one of the areas that the department, you know, wanted to grow. Yeah, I I mean, obviously I I know you, but I was also like Googling (laughs) you before this interview. (laughs) And I was looking at your Wikipedia page and it just lists all these things of like, Gonzalo was the first person to do this and the first person to do this and the first person to determine that this is how the tree of life works. And I was like, wow, (laughs) I didn't know that when I was taking your class. I was just like, wow, this guy is so smart. (laughs) I don't know. I I don't know if I'm that smart. And I'm not being here. I I work very hard, right? And I think that... um, you know, that's something very important um, in, in this career, right? I mean, it's just, you know, you need to be smart, but many people are. I'm not going to, you know, claim to be like super smart. I'm, I'm really not, I'm, I'm, but I'm a very hardworking person, very determined, and I can concentrate and do something. Yeah, I will claim that on your behalf. I remember taking your class and just like any question that I had about any invertebrate, you just knew the answer. And I have never forgotten that. It was just wild. Like, the, you know, I feel like, myself included, many people focus on sort of the vertebrate part of the tree of life, but realistically, that's a very small proportion of all of animal life. And so the fact that you just, like, knew everything about every invertebrate, which just has always blown my mind. Like, how, I guess, how have you, because I know, obviously, you have a focus area more on sort of spiders and things like that, but how have you sort of amassed this giant knowledge of all, every invertebrate? Well, I mean, one thing is that I've always been very interested in, in the, the big picture of animal evolution, right? So I keep studying that and all that. But the other thing is that obviously when I go to lecture, I prepare the lecture. I reread things, right? That, you know, I, I might know. not always remember everything, you know, <laughs> but I prepare for the lecture. But, um, but no, you know, I've always been very interested in, you know, especially in rare groups and in the animals and not a lot of people study um so that's you know it's, it's always been a passion and and many of these things i've learned through my entire life many of these things i learned very early in my life which when it was much easier to remember things like today as well you know? so, <laughs> yeah 
So what are some of these, like if you could talk up some of these rare groups that you think are cool that most people don't know about, what are some of the ones that you would want to highlight? Yeah, I mean, today we're doing a lot of work in the lab on velvet worms. And, uh, and I think this is one of these, and almost everyone who sees them, they're fascinated by them, but very few people get to see them. Not to mention, not only in the field, but even alive anywhere, right? Because they're, they're rare. There's only about 200 species living worldwide, most of them in, in rainforests. Um, and, and they're not in North America, for example. Well, there, there's a couple of species in Mexico, uh, but that's it, right, for all North America. Um, you know, I have a grad student who's in his fifth year who's working on bellwork worms. He's never seen one alive, among other things, because we really? haven't been able to go to the field with yeah. COVID, right? But they're, they're rare, but, but they're really fascinating. And, and everyone, when you show those videos of the velvet worms, like shooting the blue and hunting the prey, everyone loves those animals, right? And they're very simple. They're not very, uh, you know, they're not abundant, wherever you find them, they're not diverse. So those are the sorts of groups that I like. Or you might remember when, you know, we did a lab on the cycleophorans that live in the mouth parts of lobsters, right? An entire animal phylum that was only discovered in 1995, right? So those sorts of things are the ones that really, you know, keep it going. I'm always interested in those small, obscure, rare groups, things that are only found in like two places in the world and things like that. And I've gone there to look for them and find them, right? That's the other fun part of, of my job. Yeah. So can you talk a bit more about the fieldwork that you do and also the fieldwork that you have incorporated into your classes and why you think fieldwork generally is important? Yeah. So I think, you know, fieldwork is, is not only important. I think it's fundamental for anyone working on, on biology. Really get to see the things in nature is completely different from reading about them in books or even seeing them in a lab. Um, so when I was a student, uh, fieldwork was very influential. We had a lot of field trips, some of them one week long field trips uh, for most of our classes, you know, for vertebrate biology, for entomology, for invertebrate zoology, for plant biology. So we always went out in the field. Some of them were like many short local field trips, other were really long trips, but, but that was really important for my education. Um, not to mention that I have spent a lot of my, my time as a kid also in the field on my own sometimes or taking my cousin in or someone who wanted to come with me to go for things, right? So, so that was very important. And that's where you learn most biology, right? I mean, I always said, when you ask me, how do you remember these things? Well, some things I read in a book and I read them 10 times and I forget. But if I have seen it once in the field, you have seen that character in the animal, I never forget, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think that that... You know, now today we use the terminology of like, you know, different types of learning and blah, blah, blah. But it is true. That's the oldest form of learning, just seeing things on your own in the field and you never forget. So that's why I, I thought it was very important to incorporate that uh, in my teaching. Um, and my, the first time I taught an invertebrates class at Harvard, you know, I was new here. and didn't, you know, that was my second year in New England. So I decided to have a field trip going to the um, Harbor Forest. Uh, and it just went there. It was like March or April. And you know, the ground was frozen and we couldn't find any animals. So that's when I decided, well, if I have to take my students to the field for my invertebrates class, we have to go somewhere tropical where we can see stuff, right? And that's when I started my, my field trip for the invertebrate zoology class. At the beginning, we went to a very small 
um, field station in Bahamas, which was a tiny island with only that station. It was great, but that was too small and they didn't have any facilities. And then we started going to the um, tropical marine station in Panama, right, in Bocas del Toro. So that's the component for teaching. I think that that part of the teaching where the students get to see the things on their own is what makes uh, that knowledge stick. Um, and then for my research is because I work on, on broad phylogenetic diversity and I work on biogeographic questions that we need to compare the, the same or similar pioras from the different continents to study how the continents broke apart and things like that. We need to constantly go out in the field and collect a lot of these things. And many of these things are very rare. Um, and then, you know, there was, when I started doing molecular phylogenetics, there were the papers that used the animals that you can get shipped you know, shipped from a field station, right? And there were always the same species came up in many of these studies, but they were always missing important lineages that are in other places and they're difficult to collect. And, and that's what I kind of specialize in, right? In trying to, to get all these rare things from different places. And, and I've been collecting these things just everywhere. Um, you know, there's uh, one, the only velvet worm in tropical Africa, and it only was collected a hundred years ago. I, I just go there and try to figure out where that thing might have lived a hundred years ago. Places change a lot and, and just go there and collect these things, right? And, and that way I've, I've been doing field work in every continent, uh, in every ocean, because I collect terrestrial or marine, it doesn't matter. You know, I've been collecting from Greenland to Antarctica, you know, diving in Antarctica to get, um, you know, underwater samples and, you know, a lot of the, the intertidal, the subtitle marine invertebrates from Antarctica. I've been in all the rainforests, uh, the main rainforest in the world, whether it's in Africa or Southeast Asia or the Amazon. And it's just, you know, I, I go to wherever I need to go to get the animals that I need for my research. Um, whether it's cave, lava tubes, or, you know, just, I, and I like that part also, right? I'm, you know, I like my, my sports and, and I've done a lot of different things in my life. So I like, I like that added component of the adrenaline. It's always super safe, but there's always that like the exotic place and the adrenaline. And I, I also like that. Yeah. Yeah. What is the coolest place that you have been to or like one of your best field memories? Yeah. I, I think that my trip to Antarctica and, you know, diving in Antarctica, I, that is one of my highlights. It was another very short field trip where we had to dive in the lava tubes of um, in the Canary Islands, and, and this was just a, a lava tube that emerges in the middle of a restaurant. So people are having dinner in this you know fancy restaurant, and there we are with all our underwater gear, walking <laughs> between the tables, people eating, and then going into that lava tube to look for these rare things that only live in those environments. And so those are two, and then my other third best memory is a trip that we did to the Rio Negro in, in Brazil, where we rented a boat and we lived on, on the boat and, and navigated up the river and set up a lab with, with some, you know, close colleagues and friends. And, and you know, we spent about a week there collecting distance in very remote places in north, you know, north of the Rio Negro. So those are probably some of my best places. But then... I, you know, I love them all. I, you know, I love New Zealand. I've been in New Zealand so many times and I keep getting new projects to work in New Zealand. It's, you know, it's not as glamorous as some of these other ones, but it's one of my favorite places. It's oh, super yeah, safe. New Zealand is amazing. Yeah, and it's super safe. I only broke my hand there once, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> just casually, just yeah. broke your hand. 
Can you talk a bit about what your roles? So we've had multiple faculty members on the show before. And so I think that side of things is fairly well covered in terms of like what it looks like. But can you talk about what your role as both a director and a curator at the museum, what those entail? Yes. So, the, you know, the curator of the museum is the, the scientist who's in charge of a scientific collection, right? And, and that scientist might be in charge of incorporating new specimens to the collections, which today they might be very targeted about, you know, areas or, or taxonomic groups that we need to represent in our collections because we want to do research related to certain aspects, you know, um, and climate change is, is an important one. So, mm -hmm. um, so taking care of those collections, making sure they're available for other people to study, right? Museums are the, uh, you know, they take care of biodiversity, but to make it available for everyone to study. It's, it's a very different world from other things where, you know, uh, it, they tend to keep their things for themselves. Museums keep these collections so people all over the world can study them. And people constantly come to our museum to study our specimens, we request specimens for all, from other museums to study ourselves, and we send specimens to researchers all over the world to study them, right? So it's a very connected community where we share specimens for other people to study and vice versa. Um, and as the director of the MCC, I mean, the MCC is one of the oldest museums definitely in, in North America, um, and, and it is a very large museum where we have a lot of type specimens from uh, many species. There's groups like herbs and mammals where we may have a very large proportion of the types, the specimens that we're used to describe many species, like sometimes up to 20% of an entire group worldwide. We might have some of those original specimens here, right? The first specimens that were collected for those groups. And, and one of the things that I'm trying to do as, as the director of the MCC is to make sure a lot of that information becomes more visible and usable for the entire community. Um, so we, you know, the previous director did an amazing job at building a, a very powerful database. So everyone knows what we have, right? And our database feeds many other databases. When someone goes and wants to look at the distribution of an animal worldwide, they might go to a portal like GPIF and they type, you know, what is the distribution of primates, right? And, and you get maps of distribution and those points come from a lot of the museums, right? If museums have proper databases, all the information feeds into these portals, right? And we're one of the leading institutions in, in feeding information to a lot of these global portals for understanding some of these things. Uh, the, the collections were renovated under uh, Jim Hankins there. And so we have a really good collection in a very good position. What I want to do is bring that collection now more to the forefront of other sciences. So one of the initiatives that we started, for example, is trying to cryopreserve a lot of our type specimens because, you know, DNA is such a powerful tool, but for a long time, we have ignored DNA on the old museum specimens. We thought, you know, they're not worth for DNA. The DNA is highly degraded. But with all the current technological developments, for example, when people are able to sequence an entire human genome from a tiny bone that they found from 100,000 years ago, right? So if we can do that, it means that the technology is able to sequence, you know, fragmented DNA from a specimen that is in our collections for 150 years, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we leave them as they are in the general collection, that DNA keeps degrading. So one of the initiatives that I'm trying to uh, do is to cryopreserve a fraction of a lot of those type specimens, those first specimens from every species, keep them in, in liquid nitrogen um, 
So in the near future, we might be able to provide entire genome sequencing for many of these organisms, right? And, and I think that moving, you know, the same way that I was in early zoologist adopting DNA techniques to study phylogenetics, I, I want to bring our museum to the forefront of genomics. It's the, it's the future frontier. I mean, we still have the specimens to study their anatomy and many other things, but there's been no museum uh, that has taken a global initiative to, to have these genomic resources for all their most important specimens. And one of, that's one of the things that I want to do for the MCC, but also hope that then other museums also start doing some of those initiatives. Um, so I want to you know, grow our cryogenic collection. I want to study DNA from all museum specimens and, and add value to those specimens that, you know, those specimens have been ignored for a long time. And for example, for studies on climate change, we can go back to study the same localities. You know, we might have corals from 150 years ago and 100 years ago and 50 years ago, and we can monitor how those same species from the same localities have been changing through time. Right? And we know that corals respond to, to things like bleaching by substituting the strains of the social tele that live on those corals, for example. Right? And, and what we've been doing in recent times is look at how things change in a very short time scale or how they change across geography, right? We may see, well, these areas are warmer and they have these strains and these other areas that are, you know, colder have these other strains, but uh, very few people have looked at the same place through time. And I think that with the new genomic techniques, we can also do those things, especially in museums that have these very old samples and samples going back a lot of time for, you know, many, Caribbean localities, for example, right? So that's one of the things that I'd like to do uh, as director is to really put, you know, more value into our old specimens by bringing them into the climate change era studies and, and things like that. Cool. So I have a couple questions to follow up on that. So one question is, I think in my head, when I think of a curator, I'm envisioning the person who is sort of like designing the public facing exhibits at a museum right and everything you described is not that <laughs> so like is that also part of your job or are there other people who work at museums who yeah. do the public facing side of things yeah it, it is not part of my job um okay the, the, the mcz is a very unique museum so when you look at the olympic museums the smithsonian the uh, american museum of natural history the film museum the cal academy those are museums you know, standalone museums where they have the, the research staff and they have the exhibition staff and they have different programs, right? The MCZ, if you want, is just a research institution. Mm -hmm. And then we have public galleries like the Harvard Museum of Natural History or the Harvard Museum of Science and Culture with a different director. And they are just the public face. Obviously, they, they you know, in their exhibits, they have our specimens. And I have contributed to design several exhibits as part of my grounds, as far as the outreach, but that is not my job. So mm -hmm. I'm the you know, advisory committee for the public museums, but the NCC is just a research institution. You could call it an institute, right? Instead of mm -hmm. a museum. It's a museum because we have the specimens and all those things, but that's, it's not a public museum if you want. And, and, and you're true. right I also- know that. Yeah, you should have. <laughs> I know you should have. Now I'm thinking yeah. like, oh shoot, the museum is not actually called the MCZ, it's called yeah. the But everyone, everyone gets them confused. And, <laughs> and you're right, in an art museum, often curators are also the people who choose all the pieces that are going into exhibit and all that. In, in natural history museums, the curators are more in charge of the, the research and the specimens. And then you have exhibits people who, you know, 
they interact, obviously. We interact a lot, but um, that's not my job. The next question I had from that was, what sorts of research do people do with museum specimens that you have? Like, obviously, you were talking about doing some genomic stuff and time series, but it seems like that's sort of the frontier. So what sorts of things are people doing now? Yeah, there, there's a lot of research I mean, from people describing new species. You know, and many of us describe species of specimens that are in the museum uh, to people that are looking at the evolution of anatomical features, uh, adaptations, you know, uh, Naomi Pierce is now looking at the colors of the butterfly wings and they're looking at, you know, options related to, to seeing some of those colors. Mm. There's people using fossils to reconstruct how animals move, right? So that's, that's a, 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 you know, an area of research that is called functional morphology, right? When, by studying the anatomy of these organisms, by comparing the fossils with living ones, you can understand how they interact with the environment, how they move, how they colonize land, things like that. There's people doing robotics in the museum where they're studying cool. you know, how fishes move and how fishes interact with their aquatic environment and designing robots to, to swim like, like those fishes. Um, mm. There's people studying uh, bird flight and maneuvering and then applying those things also to you know, planes, right? So it's all sorts of, of research that uses animals either whether you're studying their evolution, their anatomy, their physiology, their, you're using them as applied subjects for other areas of research. So people studying development, um, so really also ecology, all sorts of things. Um, anything you can do with animals, with specimens, and we have those specimens in the museum, and we keep bringing specimens to study all of these things. And of course, you know, as I mentioned, genomics and, and things like that. Cool. So you mentioned that in your PhD and then also now you've sort of identified places where people aren't doing that type of work and you've been sort of pioneering. Have Was that purposeful or did you sort of like happen upon like, oh, wow, would you look at this? There's nobody doing this. I'll do it. Or were you sort of seeking out? And if you were seeking out, how did you identify the places that were sort of novel and cool to go uh, into? Um, you know, I think it's a little bit of both, right? It's all these things. I'm, you know, I'm attracted to all these rare things, but often want to find a niche, right? I mean, I do a lot of work on, you mentioned spiders, I do a lot of work on arachnids, but there's actually a lot of people working on spiders. So I prefer to work, I mean, I, I do work on spiders a little bit, but I prefer to work in all the groups that are more neglected, that there's fewer people working on those. So- and, I know, I'm sorry, I'm realizing now you work on Apelionis, which are <laughs> not honest, spiders. For example, exactly. I'm sorry, and, I'm uh, sorry, that's my bad. <laughs> no, but, but I, and that happens with, you know, every, every group, right? Even in, you know, I do a lot of work on mollusks, and, and I've had students working on gastropods, but, but I prefer to focus on all the groups that are not so many people, right? Um, in arthropods, I just don't do insects. There's already a lot of people doing insects, but I do myriapods and arachnids. And so, so that's a little bit how I, you know, I choose my group sometimes is that love for the unknown a little bit, for the, the, the rare things. You know, I like the challenge of you're never going to get those animals for your study, right? That, that, that is, that works. <laughs> and I get them normally, you know, so, um, so I worked with uh, one of different groups that when I started working with them, there were very few specimens in collections and there were very little interest. And I'm, I'm very happy that now a lot of people have been trained to collect those rare small animals, that there's been a lot of research going on with some of those groups. Um, so that makes me very happy, right? Like bringing some of these 
obscure groups, a little bit more to the forefront. Um, I think I like that. Yeah. Has that been a more difficult path? Because I also like to study things that are weird and dangerous sometimes. I mean, with my poison frogs and stuff. But I also find that studying sort of like the weird animals can be hard. Like we don't have the genomic tools to do a lot of stuff in poison frogs that you could in mice or elegans or even xenopus and so it can make the research a lot more challenging so do you find that as well yeah i think that i mean you're right uh, that it can be more challenging but if you're really driven there's also a lot of opportunities there to to do new things to Mm -hmm. to break ground right so i I think that's that's you know finding the balance between what can be done and what it's novel or pioneering it's a skill right and i think that that it will help you you know you will be much more successful if you end up, you know, with a system that you have developed that if you follow someone else with a system that might have many more resources, but there's a lot of other people working on that system, right? Mm-hmm. And, and one of the nice things, you know, you mentioned that there's not a lot of genomic tools for, for your, you know, poison frogs, for example. But fortunately, it's becoming much easier, right? Uh, a decade or two decades ago, you either worked on the five model organisms or you couldn't do anything interesting, right? Everything else was kind of like very collateral. And, and now because for a couple thousand dollars, not a lot, maybe $5,000, you can put together a really high quality genome of pretty much any organism mm-hmm. that opens a lot of doors to do new research in, in organisms that it would have been really, really difficult 20 years ago. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think having that component of wanting to start a new thing, knowing that the resources that, that are around today might allow you to develop a system. It will take more time, uh, it might take determination. And look, you know, at the beginning, a lot of this research gets ignored, right? Because people prefer to focus on the well-known systems or the well-known models. And, and you need to uh, persevere. But I think, you know, at the end, you know, you will be very proud that, that you've put your weird animals on the map. Right. Um, I think that, you know, for me, that was when I started working on not only in Opelionis, which there wasn't too many people working, but in a very obscure small group of Opelionis that they looked like mites and for every while, you know, they were all the same. At one point, you know, there was an article written in the New York Times about that research and it really felt good, right? How these animals that no one had studied for a couple of decades and that no one gave anything for them, suddenly they attracted, you know, the attention of a very good science journalist writing for the New York Times, right? Um, that made me very, very proud. And not, not, and it's not an ego thing, really. It's like putting the animals in the map, right? And I think that's, that's really cool. Yeah. What are you most proud of when you look back on your career to this point? Um, that's a tough question. And uh, maybe I've been asked that question before and every time it's like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, because, uh, you know, I'm not one of those people who see science as something like a eureka moment, right? It's a lot of building on, on previous, but I think that the, the work that I've done on trying to understand the broad picture of, of the animal tree of life, you know, that's for me something really close to my heart. That's what I wrote a book called The Invertebrate Tree of Life. Right. Um, but I'm not the only one who has contributed to that. I mean, that's an effort from the entire community, from a lot of people. But I, I think 
I have played an important role on that uh, that path of discovery of refining. Um, so you, I don't know if you remember, we used to have that textbook Brasca uh, in, mm -hmm. in verb resort, right? When I was a student, I used the first edition of Brasca and Brasca, and, and then there was a second edition, there was a third edition, and to me, as someone who has studied in Burberry's for his life, you know, getting the author of the you know most important textbook in Burberry's to ask me to co-author the fourth edition with him, it, it's a big achievement, right? And I think that my my passion for invertebrates, my knowledge of a diversity of groups of invertebrates, and my contributions to understanding the relationships of invertebrates is what has led to, to some of these things, right? So we're now uh, wrapping up the proofs. So as soon as I finish with you, I need to go back to read proofs for the fourth <laughs> edition of, of this book, which will be Brasca, Juribet, and more, right? So I think that's a, a big accomplishment for me. You know, for other people, it will be more like you know, the big scientific paper here, which we all like, or the big grant. But this is something that it has, it's a love relationship, right? So, so I'm very proud of that. Yeah, that's awesome. When will that come out? In the spring. Uh, the spring. This yeah. spring, here. It will finish the proofs. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, congratulations on that. That's really cool. Um, what are some of the habits that you have that you think make you successful as a scientist or as a person? Yeah, I, I think that the, the ability to concentrate and find the time, you know, I'm very disciplined. And, you know, if I need to do something, you know, I, I, I mean, maybe today I procrastinate a little bit more, you know, <laughs> maybe <laughs> no, I, don't, no, I have a lot of other things going on, right? You, you get more responsibilities and other things. But I think that, as a scientist, I've always, you know, seen myself as someone who's not afraid to do little work, right? Little work, little work, little work. And, and in, in my type of science, is accumulating a lot of that little work, right? I mean, you know, adding new taxa, adding new characters, you know, spending time at, at the microscope. Those are things that give little reward. And you have to accumulate a lot of that to, to have the end product, right? So I think I've been, I've been very good at that, right? At, at doing the little work every day, a little bit of little work, you know, so, some days it feels like, oh, I haven't accomplished anything today, right? But, but you know, just a silly example, my EndNote library, right? Is something I've been working on for since I was a grad student, right? My EndNote library, I'm just gonna open it now to tell you how many, but it contains 23,000 references all of them well curated, all of them with PDF, right? That's, that's, it's a kind of a silly example, but that's something that you need to do almost every day, right? Almost every day when you import references, you gotta make sure that, that everything is correct, that everything is italicized, what needs to be italicized. But these are little tools that when you're writing a short paper or a book with 3000 references, make those tasks much easier, right? So mm -hmm. doing a lot of those little tasks, little by little and accumulating them, you know, they add up at the end. And, and the reference manager thing is, is a silly thing. Um, but I think I've done that through my career with a lot of things, right? Accumulating sequences for you know, the large study, right? Instead of trying to do a smaller study with these and then just trying to accumulate and growing and, and having the larger database when we can answer some of these uh, larger questions. So those types of things. Mm -hmm. And then finding, you know, people say, oh, you, you know, you have half an hour to do something and, and 
I'm fine. You know, I was doing something completely different. I only have half an hour. I used that half hour to accomplish what I needed to do. Right? Instead of saying, well, I'll do it tomorrow. So, so I'm good at finding those amounts of, of time where I get the, the work done. And so, so I'm, I think I'm disciplined, right? In that sense. And I have a long flight. I said, well, I could watch three movies or I need to do all these reviews that I don't want to waste time when I'm in the office and I just do it in the plane, right? Or, or yeah. things like that. So I'm good at that, at finding when is the best time to do something, especially the things that I don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still have not gotten to the point where I can work on a plane. I know that I it's a good use of time, but I'm just like, yeah. oh, no, <laughs> I'm going to watch a movie. Well, it doesn't make a difference during COVID because I haven't flown much for the last That's year. True. That's but true. I did spend a lot of time in planes and I did get a lot of work done in planes, right? Especially all my reviews. When I had to review papers, I used to all accumulate it for planes. I, I don't want to waste, not waste, but you know, there are all the things that I want to do when I'm in my office. I want to work with the students or, or work with yeah. the, the, the microscope or I don't want to be in front of the computer doing reviews, right? Yeah. But in the plane, there's nothing else I can do. So that's one of the things that I've always put for planes and things like that. Yeah. And I guess too, you're probably flying a lot more than I am in my life. So I, that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. But look, I wasn't flying as much when I was eight. So, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so this is a totally different subject, but I know that you windsurf. Can you talk about that? I can talk about that. <laughs> I, that's my <laughs> other passion, right? I mean, if I hadn't become a, a you know a biologist and a professor in biology, probably I would have been a you know professional you know coach, sailor, and all that. I, I, I've raced since I was very young. Uh, this last year, I placed third in the world championships of the master class, which is my age class. So I, I continue competing. That's my escape, you know, when I'm not uh, doing science and people think, where is Gonzalo? Gonzalo might be windsurfing somewhere, you know, or, or taking photos of animals somewhere, right? It's like, those are my, my passions, right? And and again, I've done it always uh, in a very um methodical way. I mean, I, I trained and I competed and I, I like that part, that the discipline component of it and, and do things not, you know, maybe I'm a bit extreme, but I don't do things in a leisurely way. I, I, when I do things, I put all into that, right? And and for me also, the windsurfing has been really good because that's when I really switch off completely from, from research and my work or things like that, right? And I was mentioning that I could work many hours and I was a postdoc student and all that. Yet I also took a month off to just, you know, the winter. For, you know, I think it's, for me, it works better than, you know, taking a little bit one day and then two, three days off, right? For me, that was that, that disconnection for a few weeks, right? And then completely recharge and then come back in. Um, and I, you know, I've done that for also for, for windsurfing, right? It's always been an important part of my life. I, you know, whenever I can, uh, I go windsurfing whenever I can, which is not always. I, I try to go to these uh, competitions. I always try to do a couple of the international competitions every year. Of course, I don't have a lot of time. Uh, or And the timing is not great living in England because there's not much windsurfing I, I do here in the winter, right? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so then um, if people wanted to get in touch with you or follow your research or anything, what's the best way they could do that? 
like Instagram, Twitter, email, whatever you're really Yes. Um, I think that, you know, the, the easiest way is to email, right? Um, and the, the email needs to be a bit precise, right? When I get an email, someone who yeah. I like to work in, you know, my research is on tobacco plants. I like to do a piece in your lab. You know, those emails, we get so many of those that, you know, it has to be really yeah. Well, thanks so much for no, thank this. you. This, 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 was awesome. is, this was fun. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Roots to STEM, and thanks to Gonzalo for being here with us. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to tell a friend. Also, thanks to Lauren Lubeck and Isabel Jabara for helping me with some behind-the-scenes programming. We'll be back soon with another episode.